Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. This morning, um, had a, had a friend reach out and oh, an acquaintance, um, talking about a, a, a lot of discontentment with the current employment situation that he is facing. And I've I've heard this before. I've had a, a couple different conversations, and I've of course have experienced that and go through seasons of strong, sometimes severe discontentment with my place of employment. And um, I thought thought it'd be helpful to know, you know, when Paul in scripture tells us that he has learned to be content, um, there's, and, and you and I have talked about the value of learning to be content. How do we, how do we sort of detect or know when God is leading us through a season to be content and to learn contentment? Or when uh, maybe we should get the get the sign, get the message that we should be looking somewhere else. Um, you know, in this case, it's specifically employment, but it could be you know you could apply that to a lot of things, whether it be housing or um, even church friendships, those those areas. So, looking for some wisdom on uh, when to seek out contentment and when to, when to recognize that or how to recognize this is an opportunity to seek contentment versus, um, you know, looking somewhere else. Very good. Well, first of all, for the sake of our viewers, we have to, they want to find that your verse there in the Bible. It's in First Timothy 6, Paul's letter to one of his protégés, pastor named Timothy, and... Um, He's telling them that uh, that people of a corrupt mind, they've been robbed of uh, the truth of what godliness is about. They think godliness is a means to financial gain. That's fascinating right there. That's 1 Timothy 6, 5. I hadn't really thought much about that. Uh, only mentioned that because it was noted uh, this in 2022, uh, giving is down. Um, I forget what it is yet. There's been a, an infusion of cash uh, from the federal government. So while uh, income has been up, uh, giving's been down. And uh, that's, I just find it fascinating from our country that claims to have so many Christians, that uh, Christians were right in the midst of that. Um, that, uh, I don't know all the reasons, but, uh, you know, we haven't been particularly generous uh, for a long, long time, and we're becoming a little less generous. So godliness, they think that godliness is a means to financial gain in verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is a means of great gain. Well, first of all, Pat, what's, what I find is fascinating in that is why, why couple those two? In other words, most people, if they often say, I really want to be a godly person would you ever say back to them well remember 
and godliness with him with contentment <laughs> is a means of great gain <laughs> you can I almost would... say this is saying godliness by itself is not right it's a great gain implies yeah yeah what's going on there well you know there, there is the notion i can't cite who but some of the mystics would say the caution in something being so alluring is that it can it can it can be an idol become an idol now as any created thing can become an idol now this we don't want to bend your mind too much here this morning but your church can be your idol it's a creative thing um godliness can become an idol um there are those who have made a good case that protestants idolize the bible because it is not the bible per se because idolatry is absolutizing anything what's the word what does that mean absolutizing well to make something absolute the, the yeah. final yeah. <clears throat> you can only make god and you can't make him absolute but only god is absolute right so uh even beauty that is created can become absolutized your view of the bible can become absolutized mm. And um, it's just, it's fascinating uh, how easily we can absolutize something. And I, I think that that, yeah, um, it can, you can, especially if you listen to these terrible commencement addresses, you can absolutize your work. Your work should be not only a means of great gain, but great purpose, great joy, great, 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 great. And because it's all, it's, it's, the older I get, the more I feel like it's just plain over the top. <laughs> and it's primarily written by people who don't have to do it. Hmm. So the old adage, nice work if you can get it. Uh, but if I'm there, you know, you and I often use the example, I'm, I'm writing code in my basement for, in my remote job uh, in Ames, Iowa, where I'm you know, putting together four pickup trucks. It's hard to read much of this stuff at Christians and go, uh, why don't you come on and spend a day with me in Ames <laughs> and help me sort this out? So, so where did this come from then, this discontentment? Well, I think this is, there's a fascinating thing here by uh, C.S. Lewis. And uh, so today we're just going to talk a tiny bit about this for listeners, uh, it's his inaugural lecture uh, from the Chair of Medieval and Renaissance Literature at Cambridge in 1954. That's right, the year I was born, <laughs> 1954. So um, this inaugural lecture, I thought, I thought Lewis was at Oxford. What's going on there? Yeah. <laughs> I, I do not know. Well, he was, he was at Oxford for many years, and the, the thinking is, first of all, he, you, know, you only have um, a head of a chair, and that's a professor of a discipline. The rest are dons, D-O-N, which denotes 
wisdom, but you're not a professor. And uh, he was denied that at Oxford. And they often say, probably because of professional jealousy amongst other professors who, um, Lewis, especially when he appeared on the cover of Time magazine in 1947 for his um, BBC lectures during the war, which came Chronicles of Narnia or Mere Christianity or what have you, um, they just resented his popularity. And some often maybe thought it was beneath a professor providing children's stories. All that to say, um, the ceiling was low and um, for his advancement. And Cambridge came along, pretty shrewd move, and offered him a professorship. And he took it. Now that made it, I think, also noted, um, there was a beginning at the dissolving of the Inklings, as best I can tell, in and around this time for a number of reasons. So we'll talk about it another time. But uh, he was selected to be the chair of medieval and Renaissance literature, 1954. And he gave his inaugural lecture, which was in Latin, De Descriptione tempora, Temporum, which means uh, just describing the ages that we're in. And he talks about the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. But I want to draw our attention to uh, a point he makes here that I think is uh, really important. He talks about the age of the machine. You know what he's talking about there? You said the age in... The age of the birth of the machines and the age of the machine. What's Lewis talking about here? Probably something uh, related to the Industrial Revolution and the impact of that on mankind, I would guess. Yeah. It's his fourth point, and he calls it, he goes, lastly, I play my trump card. <laughs> so it, what's fascinating also in this is 1954, his third point, was he said there's been a great religious change that he had mentioned before, the unchristening of the world before Jane Austen. And we could talk a bit about all that, but the point is, um, he said there was, uh, Europe had come out of Christianity by the same door that she went in. And we are now in a um, unprecedented time, what he called uh, we're in a post-Christian time. Isn't that fascinating? So he was way ahead of everybody on this. He goes, a post-Christian is not a pagan. Miles will think that a married woman recovers her virginity by divorce. His point is that um, in becoming, that we don't, post-Christians haven't become pagans. They haven't re reverted to what they were, just as a married woman doesn't recover her virginity by divorce. Rather, a post-Christian is cut off from the Christian past, Christian past, and therefore doubly from the pagan past. In other words, they're further away from the gospel than the pagan. Because uh, think about a, a woman who has been uh, sure. burned in her marriage, a woman scorned yeah. and divorced, twice as far from marriage, the idea of marriage, than had she never been married. So here is Lewis setting up his trump card. And he says, between Jane Austen and us, and he cites Jane Austen's work, Persuasion, 1816, as kind of her, uh, the apex of her magnificent writing. 
but not between her and Shakespeare or Chaucer or Alfred or Virgil or Homer or the pharaohs comes the birth of the machines. The machines, he didn't mean not only the industrial revolution, but the idea of the new being better than the old. He says, I submit, and then he goes into some links about all this, that um, with the age of the machine came the idea that uh, the highly emotive word stagnation, with all its melodious and malarial overtones, <laughs> is a bad thing. And um, what the other ages would have called permanence, we call that stagnation. And who wants to be stagnant? In other words, kind of the era of That's right. bigger, faster, stronger, yep. always always be growing. Yeah. What's the next yes. new thing? How do we make technology right. faster? Yeah. And he asks this question, so why does the word latest in advertisement actually mean best? Uh, huh. Ah. So you see where this is going. He goes, this is semantic development that we owe to the 19th century belief in spontaneous progress which owes itself to something either to Darwin, but beyond Darwin. And, uh, but he says, uh, what this fueled is the age of the old machines has been superseded by new and better ones. And the new ones, now you could just flip out the word machine for technologies. That's the more important thing, technologies. Sure. So the old technologies, and that's fascinating because technology used to be considered a part of moral philosophy and the liberal arts. And um, you studied technologies at the University of Maryland. I doubt you took a class in philosophy. Nope. So in the world of technology, the new more often is really better and the primitive ones are clumsy. And he goes, so this image, potent in all our minds, reigns almost without rival in the minds of the uneducated. Now, remember, he's speaking to Cambridge students, so he's not saying blue collar. In fact, Lewis is actually known because in World War II, he would speak in factories or places where people were what you might call uneducated. And that's where he learned to communicate. So he wasn't talking about uneducated, that is, you don't have a degree from Cambridge, but rather you've never developed a life of the mind, as the Greeks talked about. And he was a big fan of the Greeks. And I think he makes a good point here. In fact, it's um, um, the, the Philip uh, Reeve, in his final book talked about that um, the higher you go up in the educational system today, the higher the illiteracy. <laughs> wow. And so if you go to Ivy, in his opinion, he passed away in 06, is, uh, he taught at Penn. But he said, you know, if you go to an Ivy, you've gone to about some of the most illiterate schools out there. Because you actually don't study great literature. Huh. Yeah. So that's what it means. It reigns in the minds of the uneducated. Now, this is the important point here that we'll get to is that 
he says, uh, what this created in us in terms of technologies, the footprints is left behind in our language, he says, is what separates us most sharply from our ancestors and whose absence would strike us as almost alien if we could return to their world. And what is that? Here it is. The assumption that everything is provisional and soon to be superseded and that the attainment of goods we have not, we've never yet had rather than the defense and con cons conservation of those we have already is the cardinal business of life and would shock and bewilder our ancestors if they could visit us today. Let me read that again. This age of technology that Lewis said began to come upon us after Jane Austen persuasion, 1816. So now you have the Industrial Revolution is coming full bore into not only the Western world, the United States in particular, has left footprints on our language. And it separates us, in his opinion, most sharply from our ancestors because it's our assumption that everything is provisional and soon to be superseded. So what drives us is the attainment of goods we have never yet had rather than the conservation of those we have already. And it becomes the cardinal business of life it's what one person put in a famous poem many years ago, being up to date. And he said, this cardinal business of our life would most shock and bewilder our ancestors if they could visit us. Whew. That's a lot to sink your teeth into. <laughs> yeah, it is. That's, you know. That's why we're not going to go much further. Take it easy, all listeners. We're not. This is this is not going to be an hour. Um, yeah. I'm looking up the poem, by the way. Well, I think, Mike, what's Today. kind of fascinating about what Lewis is saying. I, I was as you were reading that, I was thinking about when I grew up in school and how the Industrial Revolution was more taught as. Uh, almost this this amazing thing, you know, this this where we sh we ought to be thankful that this happened because it's led to all of the good we have today, and uh, and just such a contrast to what Lewis is saying. And I think what's meaningful about what you just read to me is not to say the industrial revolution was bad, but as with all technology, um, as you have said before, and you quote from elsewhere, but you know what's fascinating about technology or what's uh, maybe dangerous about technology is we, we know what it can do, but we don't know what technology can undo. And right. it's, it's almost like what Lewis is saying is he's not saying the industrial revolution was bad, but what he's saying is what we, what we also gained from that or how our frame of reference shifted or our, our understanding of the world shifted and our expectations shifted is uh is a byproduct that we have not addressed and i think where you're leading towards that is we now this this idea of the provisional and we're looking for the latest just naturally 
seeds content discontentment in our in our hearts and minds as as we are in this world today in the present that's it yeah that's fascinating yeah we, you know we, and we've talked a bit about this but you can't imagine an iceberg of which a very small percentage is above water maybe no more than 10 percent and we know that Neuroscience tells about 5% of our behaviors are above water. We're aware of them, we're conscious, we can see them, we can scrutinize them. But 95% are hidden from us. And they are what's often called, for example, worldview or paradigm. And a paradigm is is a whole set of unconscious assumptions. And so I think you hit the nail on the head that the industrial revolution in and of itself is not the problem, but it's the underlying assumption that everything is provisional and soon to be superseded. So the attainment of goods we haven't yet had becomes the cardinal business of life rather than the contentment and conservation of that which we already have. Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. And uh, so (laughs) I had someone the other day say, is that an iPhone 5 you're using? You Neanderthal, (laughs) how can you possibly use that? It's just, you go, but you know, I I feel in terms of, uh, and we've talked about this, but you did not have the age of advertising, mostly until you had the rise of the industrial revolution, because it was well known I mean, Listerine is a famous example in this. You've heard the story of Listerine, correct? Uh, maybe. I they created a mouthwash. Right. But there was no proven, no one was going around saying they had bad breath. <laughs> so they created a, they, they came up with a word that they thought sounded medical, halitosis, <laughs> which wow. is entirely pulled out of thin air <laughs> and said, uh, Pat, your mouth is suffering from halitosis. <laughs> and we do know enough to know that, the, that um, our olfactory senses can quickly adjust. You might walk into something and at first you smell and then you don't after you become accustomed. They become accustomed rather quickly. So you can't, it's very rarely you can smell your own breath. That's, and which is a grace of God, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, your wife sure can. And, uh, you know, friends can, they can smell what you can't. So, because of that, you could, it was easy to make the case for it. You have halitosis and you don't know it. But what they're really creating is, for first we have to manufacture, here's a gap between what you think, who you think you are, and what's really good, what's really, what is a good thing, you know, fragrant breath. And so they created halitosis and they created a market. They were off to the races. And um, you can't, Literally, 
you know, we won't go into great detail in the work you do, but the fact of the matter is your customers, the uh, companies you provide this for, they have to first create discontentment that the vehicle you're currently driving has been superseded. Yeah, I, I so this is this is very helpful. I'm seeing it from the lens of things, right, and, and things and wanting more things, and then just that that uh, habit of discontentment. You know, if if it starts to apply to things, and then that's you know a non-conscious discontentment, then of course it's going to seep into other areas. I, I am curi- curious thinking about it like it's it's almost uh one step abstracted when we start to think about discontent in you know you take it maybe relationships discontent in your work discontent in your house you know like discontent in your community how that's that i think is the harder realm to discern how do you, is the answer simply always, you should, you should just be content, seek out contentment and, and, uh, wait for the Lord to open another door. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. So I don't think you seek out contentment, uh, as much as, um, yeah, we'll give you an example. So yes, we know, for example, Porn is as old as the hills, and apparently prostitution is the second oldest profession. <laughs> um, but uh, the, you know, the, I heard someone's joke. Listen, if you are a farmer, this maybe 150 years ago or whatever, and you're out in the middle of uh, the Midwest. I mean, you're spending all day looking at the ass of a donkey or a horse. <laughs> Your wife's going to look pretty darn fine. <laughs> And um, so, you know, just last week, uh, I think I put in all the most recent stats. I mean, the the amount of consumption of porn, Pornhub I read in uh, the month of uh, February this year, I think it had on average daily 73 million visitors, visits. I mean, that could be over and over, but the point is, That tells me there's a whole lot of discontentment in the sex lives of singles and marrieds. Because the greatest buttress against porn is a deeply sexually satisfying relationship with your spouse. This is this is I think what I what I just got from that was trans little little translation to this other realms is like regardless of what is going on and, and what the, the Lord's next step for your life may be, if you are discontent now, there is an opportunity for your growth to become more content. And that, that doesn't mean you 
let's take the job situation. For example, if, if you are dissatisfied or discontent with your workplace, contentment, if I, if I, if I understand you correctly, contentment is not simply staying put and not looking elsewhere, but contentment is being content with where God has called you now Mm -hmm. and potentially still looking elsewhere. But if you're not content, you're going to be looking elsewhere and maintain bitterness for where you are now. That's right. Why do so many people play play the lottery? (laughs) It can't be because the odds are in their favor. (laughs) Yeah. Because there's a fundamental disconnect that this would solve everything. Yeah. I would be content. Here's another way to put it. Uh, Elsewhere, uh, Lewis wrote about that everything, if we don't see through it, that the the beauty we see in something, the allure, the uh, attraction, if you want to call it, so it could be in a job or anything, is, is not the thing in itself. If it's attractive or beauty, it's because it's been created by some God who is attractive and God who is beauty and God who is love. And so if you don't see through to God, he makes an interesting point that that thing becomes a dumb idol. Now, hear me clearly. Here's what this, I think what it means, Pat. The age of the machine or technology blinded us to that um, for Kathy and I in our marriage, the the deepest beauty is seeing through marriage, our marriage, that actually our bodies are a portal into knowing God, the chief portal. The flesh is the hinge of salvation, is how older catechisms read. And marriage is the quintessential picture of that. So all of a sudden, the stakes are a lot higher than, do we love it? Are we happy together? But if it's nothing more than, I'm not happy. I want my happiness. That happiness, which is intrinsically a good thing, is now a dumb idol. Godliness is intrinsically a good thing, but without contentment, it becomes a dumb idol. You've absolutized it. Or you can absolutize your job and say, hey, uh, my job should give me purpose. I don't feel any purpose here. F this job. It's the problem is you turned your job into an idol. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. You turned your home. Listen, you can turn any, every created thing, your church, the Bible, believe it or not, your children, helicopter parents, not only are setting themselves up for bills big time from chiropractors down the road, (laughs) but uh, they've turned their children into idols. And I have watched parents, I mean, they practically turn away from any notion that this is they are an adult married couple who by their union depict the gospel oh that's an abstraction yeah whatever no it's that we do everything we can for our kids we live for our kids 
The secret message, by the way, is, and we won't be content if they don't get into Harvard. Right. And um, they don't hear. They don't hear any of this. Is what the Bible calls idolatry. We've Lewis was right, and he said this elsewhere. We instead turn these into therapeutic terms rather than theological terms. And the Bible is called idolatry. We call it um, just still finding ourselves, still figuring it out, still sorting through it. Still, I love this word I hear from a lot of friends. Still processing. <laughs> That's the Philadelphia 76 was about the process. <laughs> You'd have to know the sports world. Uh, so I think, I, I, again, because, um, and Lewis wasn't alone in this, I mean, token inklings, but so many of the rest, they understood what uh, Max Weber talked about, that with the Enlightenment and then the, and the modern age, and what came out of that was modernity, that is these technologies, they all gave us, they entered the age of disenchantment. In the age of disenchantment creates in us longings for contentment because we're never, en enchantment is where we find contentment. And the enchantment can be as simple as, the word means in song, the song of songs is seeing that our bodies tell God's story. And so I can be a factory worker, I can be, a, I can be, I can be anywhere, and the thing that comes along with me is my body. Unless you're in the Steve Martin movie, The Man with Two Minds, but that's a whole other story. And um, your body is always with you, Pat. You are your body. Now you're more than your body. But the fact is, if you're not fundamentally content that this is where God has you in this moment, bodily, in your marriage, in your family, in the home you live in, or you don't live in, or whatever you rent, or whatever. If you don't fundamentally start with, here I am, Lord. Here I am. Penetrate me. I am your spouse if you're a Christian. Penetrate me, open me, and make me aware of where I am in hidden ways, being fundamentally driven. Important word there, by the way. In the Bible, animals are driven. Humans are pulled. They're attracted. Hence, we are not to have a purpose driven life. Purpose can become an idol that way. We are to be attracted and beauty attracts, love attracts. I think the age of technologies have created a profound, just, you can take this job and shove it. I just don't love it. And I want to do what I love. Well, our good friend Augustine would say, you're going to do what you love. You're right. But your loves are profoundly disordered. Mm -hmm. Ordered loves 
start with God makes no mistakes. Now, I might be where I am today because you reap what you sow. I might be here because I made terrible decisions, but you reap what you sow. It's not because God's mean. It's not by God enjoys you. But God does say, can you start with, this is who you are right now. And hence, you do have these magnificent stories in the Bible of people who do utterly terrible things. Yet they're called a man after God's own conscience. So David sleeps with Bathsheba, a married woman, gets her pregnant, tries to bring in her noble warrior husband, Uriah, to sleep with her. So Uriah will think, oh, this is, this is my offspring. And he refuses to do it. He says, not while my men are out fighting the war. I'll slip here at the door, but I will not enter her. But David sends him to the front line to be killed, murdered. When Nathan the prophet comes to David, tells the story of that so arrests David. David says, yes, the man who does such a despicable thing ought to be killed. And he goes, well, you're the man, David. You don't hear from David a therapeutic 21st century. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm, nobody's perfect. I'm doing my best. Hey, God forgives. That's his business. I don't feel loved. <laughs> this is kind of a private thing. I feel invaded right now by you. Who gave you the right to it? I feel judged. Wow. He goes, you're right. Mm. Paul, on his way to set up more Christians to be martyred. Jesus, well, something appears, a bright light blinding him. Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus. This is my body you're persecuting. You don't hear Paul say, Ali, we want to be perfect? He goes, you're right. You'll never arrive at contentment if you don't start with, however I have ended up at this place in life, however, and I'll never know all the reasons. Here you are with your body. And if you will open your body to the deepest penetration by God, he'll tell you where you're discontent and where you have created dumb idols. He will. And you can move toward a godliness, which is actually a means of great gain because it's accompanied by contentment. 